Good morning, Oak Ridge. It's a pleasure to be with you again. And we've come to the end of our summer series, the Bible postcards, the small books of the Bible. So interesting, little vignettes and stories in these small books that often go overlooked. And we've come to the last small book by number in the Bible as well. The second last book of the Bible is the book of Jude. And that's what we're going to be studying today. We're going to read uh, Jude chapter 1. And, and when I say chapter 1, there is only one chapter. Jude 1 through 16. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, <clears throat> to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. <clears throat> in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. God will bless the reading of his word. This book is a full book. 
There are lots of things to say about it, and unfortunately, in the two weeks I have to handle this little book, we're not going to get to everything. But I want to get to the main theme. And the main theme is troublesome. You see, there's not much good news lately in our world. The COVID-19 pandemic with its medical risks and mandatory restrictions, the struggling economy with its economic uncertainties, the great social unrest we're experiencing, the political scandals, the drug ep epidemic, global warming, and the list goes on. So how about an uplifting message, you say, from God's word? Well, that is what the Apostle Jude was thinking too. In a time of oppression in the early church, Jude, the brother of our Lord, really wanted to write a letter to cheer up the Christians. In his own words, in verse 3, he says, I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. Yes, he says, I want to remind you of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, and of his amazing work of salvation so that you might be encouraged. However, the Holy Spirit led him to do otherwise. He was directed to write about a dark and devious attack on the church from within its own ranks that threatened to undo the church even more than the persecution from outside the church. I wanted to cheer you up, says Jude, but instead I, I have to warn you to recognize this threat and learn to defend yourself from it. There are powerful enemies which want to destroy you. So that's what I have to do today. You see, I wanted to cheer you up, but the, the book, book of Jude tells me something else. We have to be warned instead. So what is this threat that Jude is talking about? He describes it this way in verse 4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So he's talking about a group of people working to create apostasy. Now, what does apostasy mean? You may have heard the word before, and the root word means this, defection, departure, revolt, rebellion. The people who do this are called apostates, and, and they have as their goal the destruction of the church. Parts of other letters in the New Testament, like 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter, warn us of this threat of apostasy, but Jude makes it the whole message of his book. In fact, some commentators have entitled Jude the Acts of the Apostates, just like the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. I want to talk about three things in regard to apostasy. First of all, the reality of apostasy. In my late teens, <clears throat> my brother and I were hired by a builder to help tear down an old building in Windsor. We were issued hard hats and sledgehammers and told to go to it. Talk about working out our teenage aggression. Tearing down walls and knocking out windows. What took months to build surrendered to our sledgehammers in just a few days. You know, this is the intent of apostates. Only the apostates don't come so loudly and blatantly and blusteringly as we did to that building. He comes in secretly and he comes 
to destroy just as effectively as we were going to destroy that building. The book of Jude tells us that there are apostates, people who infiltrate churches, not to bless or to be blessed, but to bring destruction. That is why Jude tells us in verse 3 to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. There are examples of apostates in the, in the New Testament. Not long ago, we were studying the little book of John 3, the third epistle of John. And in that book, we learned of Diotrephes. He was opposed to the gospel outreach to such an extent that he refused missionaries coming to help the church. He threw people out of the church who offered to help the missionaries. And he even badmouthed the aged apostle John who sent the missionaries in the first place. Well, what was he? He was an apostate. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 18 to 20, the apostle Paul had to severely censure two men named Hymenaeus and Alexander. What were they doing? They were seeking to subvert the true faith. What were they? Apostates. Now Paul says in the book of Acts, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And lest we think that this is only a minor issue today, let me tell you that there are many churches around us which were once beacons of truth and faithful representatives of godliness, and they have fallen a prey to the work of apostates. They don't believe the Bible anymore. They don't believe it's the true word of God. They don't preach the gospel anymore. They don't promote godly standards of behavior that the scriptures teach. Now, lest we think that we at Oak Ridge are immune from all of this, our own church over past years has had its struggles with apostasy. Whether they were unbelievers who pretended to be Christians in order to get their destructive work done, or whether they were believers bent out of shape by the devil to do his work, it really doesn't matter. The end result was going to be bad, and their efforts needed to be opposed. By God's mercy, we were able to survive attacks of apostasy in past days. And behind all of this apostasy is the devil, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he will use anyone he can to advance his work. So you see, this is the reality. The fight is real. Apostasy is real. And we must be willing to stand up for the faith. The second thing I want to talk about in regard to apostasy and apostates is this. They have a game plan. The apostates and the devil who works through them have a game plan, just as the coach of a sports team plans a way of playing an opponent to highlight his team's his team strengths and take advantage of the opponent's weakness, so the devil leads his workers to attack the churches in various ways. We find it in verse 11. Here Jude uses three Old Testament characters to make clear how apostates have a three-step plan to destroy the church. Each of the three characters reveals a step in that plan. And, and let's just read it once again. 
Jude, verse 11. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So what is the first thing that apostates seek to do? What is the first step in their game plan? They attack the truth. The doctrines of the Bible, which are the foundation of the church. It says in Ephesians that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So when they come and they attack the truth, they are attacking the very foundation of the church. And the first character that comes to us to explain this is Cain. He is an example of an apostate. It says that they have taken the way of Cain. So what was the way of Cain? You may remember the story. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel kept flocks and Cain tilled the soil. Now Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. You can imagine those fine ears of corn, those wonderful tomatoes and cucumbers and the best greens for a great salad. A vegetarian's delight. Abel, on the other hand, brought some of the best cuts of meat from his flock. Now the Lord accepted Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain's. Why not, you may ask? After all, Cain was a gardener, and he brought what he had worked so hard to produce. Was this just a case of preference or favoritism on God's part? I think not. You see, God had demonstrated already what would become a constant theme all through the Bible. And this is the major truth. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9 and 22. When Adam and Eve sinned, they realized that they were naked and tried to cover themselves with fig leaves sewn together. I don't think that this was embarrassment over their lack of clothing. Rather, I think it was profound shame for the covering that they once had and lost. They were covered with light. They were creatures of light. They were the children of light. And there was a glory covering from God over them. Just as the Shekinah glory covered the temple, so Adam and Eve were covered with the glorious presence of God. They lost that covering when they sinned, and so they tried to cover themselves another way. After God pronounced judgment against them, he himself covered them with other clothes, with garments of skin. Animals had to die for them to be covered. So God was teaching them this huge principle that sin brings death. The animal that was sacrificed in order to obtain the skins to clothe Adam and Eve had to die in place of the person who had sinned. Now some may think that this is somehow barbaric. Why would God require this? Because God's principle is this. The soul that sins will die. There is to be no, no sin in heaven. There is to be no one who enters heaven with sin. And to, to be cut off from the presence of God is spiritual death. To be cut off from the presence of God means physical death as well. The death of an animal was the substitute for Adam and Eve's death. It was all looking forward to the day when Jesus... The Lamb of God would give himself on the cross to suffer and bleed and die 
as the substitute for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, the Bible tells us. This is God's way. Abel knew this, and he brought a blood sacrifice. But Cain, well, he thought different. He had another way. I will give to God what I have worked hard to produce, and God will have to be happy with my work. His way, not God's way. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. You know, the world thinks that there are many ways to God, but the truth is there is only one way, Jesus and his work for us on the cross. You see, Cain became the first apostate. He rejected God's truth and substituted his own way of approach to God instead. And this is the first way apostates seek to destroy the church. They attack the basic truths of God and seek to replace those truths with another way that they have devised. That is why Jude urges us to contend for the faith. In other words, the body of truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. These are the precious doctrines that we hold dear. These are the foundational truths that we live by. There are to be no additions or, or subtractions from God's word. No revising of the text to make it read differently. And certainly not another gospel. Look at Jude verse 4. It says they, they denied Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. Notice the word only. I'm sorry, it's Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. Notice the word only. Not just one Sovereign and Lord, but others as well. Teachings that are contrary to scripture are introduced and the gospel truth is crowded out or just plain rejected. You can go to some of these churches on a Sunday morning and never hear the name of Jesus because they've gone on to something different. They've gone on to a new way of, of declaring uh, uh, spiritual life and Jesus is not at the center and his atoning death is not at the center. So apostates attack and reject the basic doctrines of God's word. This is their first line of attack. You know, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. His agents will always attack the truth. That's why we need to be strong in God's word. Knowing the truth is vital for identifying error. Our Bibles must be opened and read daily, and they must be obeyed. So if step number one is to attack the truth and to try to destroy the basic doctrines of the faith, step number two for the apostate is to attack the moral character of the believers in the church. And the example for this is Balaam. As we read in our text in verse 11, it says, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam was one of those mysterious Old Testament characters. He was a non-Israelite prophet, described as a diviner who was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to place a curse on the people of Israel. The people of Israel were, were a huge in number and they, they camped on the plains of Moab right in his territory. And he was rightly afraid of them. But every time uh, he he, uh, Balaam tried to pronounce this curse on, on, on Israel, God had him pronounce a blessing instead. 
And because he could not curse Israel through a prophecy, Balaam had to do something else to earn his pay. So he proposed another way to attack God's people. He advised Balak to send the Moabite women into the camp of Israel to invite the Israelite men to participate with them in the idol worship of Baal. Just last week when, when Lou was talking about, the, about Ruth, and, and Ruth was a Moabitess, uh, and she was, she was a beautiful woman. Uh, evidently, in this part of the, of the world, there were these beautiful ladies. And uh, they came into the camp, and such was, it was such an attractive invitation to break up the humdrum of life in the desert. Why not party on for once? We've been in this desert for so long. So many of them did go. Now, these pagan festivals included much sexual immorality, as well as the outright worship of idols. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, it, it records what happened. It says there, you have in this church people who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. So what do apostates do today? Well, they're like Balaam in that they seek to destroy the moral character of the church. Now, we really don't need any help to pursue our sins because we all have a sin nature and can at any time, by our own choosing, turn from righteousness and pursue sinful ways. But we must know that there is someone who wants to aid us in our sin, and that is the devil. So he inspires certain ones to enter the congregation of believers to entice them. Now remember, it's sneaky. It's not the sledgehammer approach. It's the sneaky way. They don't show their hand all at once. But slowly they influence one and then another to be careless in their Christian life. I remember a Christian man who did well in business. Then, through friends at his church, he joined a club that catered to successful businessmen for the purpose of making business connections, or so he thought. It wasn't long before he was connecting not with business associates, but with other women, and he ended up being unfaithful to his wife. Another example, someone might begin to advance the cause of social justice in the church. Social justice is a good thing, but this cause can quickly overshadow the cause of the gospel and turn a church away from its original commitment to the cause of rescuing souls for Christ. When the emphasis changes, the moral commitments can change also. Immoral behaviors become justified in the pursuit of social justice. And we have seen this in our own society today. Another man in the church began to talk with others about investments. Nothing wrong with knowing more about financial things. But before long, he had gathered a group of men who met every week to discuss their investments and stock portfolios, and that became the main focus of their lives. Growth of their finances became more important than spiritual growth, and their spiritual life suffered. Before and after church, they didn't talk much about Jesus. They talked about the latest hot stocks to buy. Now, this is how idolatry works. Something becomes more important than the Lord and captures the heart. 
When that happens, the life of the church is in peril. Many a church has died this way. And remember what motivated Balaam. It was money. He went for reward to work for Balak. When a person in high position in the church begins to use his position to make a lot of money, I tell you, something is wrong. The apostles certainly did not get rich in their ministry, but some preachers today do amass great fortunes. One man has made over $700 million in his so-called Christian ministry. Now that looks like Balaam on steroids to me. Yes, Balaam's error is with us today in the church. We need to be very aware. And we need to keep ourselves pure for Jesus and intercede on behalf of others in the church that they be kept pure as well. So we have the attack on the truth, step number one. Step number two, we have the attack on the moral character of the church. And step number three, apostates will attack the very leaders of the church. And the example is Korah. We turn back to our text in verse 11. It says, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. The story of Korah is found in number 16. Korah was a Levite, a member of the priestly tribe, and a member of the Kohathite family, whose job it was to take care of the furniture of the tent of meeting and carry it from place to place. It was a very, it was a very uh, wonderful job to be able to take care of God's furniture in his holy place. But he was not of the family of Aaron, and only Aaron's family was given the right to be priest, to be a high priest. So Korah became jealous and organized a group of 250 men to protest against the leadership of Israel, of Moses and his brother Aaron, the high priest. When Moses, at God's command, issued the death sentence on a man who had broken the Sabbath, Korah came with his mob to protest Moses' leadership and to demand equal rights. With his group of rebels around him, he confronted Moses and Aaron, and he said, Moses, this time you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Now, let's look at his words closely, because part of his words were true. He says, the whole community is holy. Yes, it is holy. They were a holy nation set apart from God, for God. And indeed, the Lord was with them. His presence was with them all. Yeah, you're right, Korah, on those steps. But Korah failed to acknowledge God's leadership choices. And then Korah went even further, accusing Moses of failing in his promise to lead them into a land of milk and honey. So Moses, by God's direction, set up a showdown. Each man was to take his censer and put fire and incense on it. That was the symbol of their prayer intercession for the nation. And then he told them to appear before the tent of meeting. When they came to the tent of meeting and all the people were there, he said to back away from Korah and all of his men. Then the earth opened under them and closed in on them, burying them alive. 
Now, if you thought that that was the end of the rebellion, it was not. And it's very insightful that even after Korah and all his men had died, the whole Israelite community who had begun to side with Korah grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying that Moses had killed the Lord's people. It wasn't just the 250 men who had been negatively influenced by Korah. It was thousands more now. And this is how apostasy works. It spreads through the whole community, just like a deadly virus. When they came as a mob against Moses, God struck them with a plague, and, and one even more deadly than COVID, and, they, and many died on the spot. But the majority were saved only by the intercession of Aaron, when with his censer, which was sanctified by God, he went into the camp, through the camp, and he prayed on, on behalf of the people. Are these things happening today? Well, we don't see the earth opening and closing in on people. But are they happening? Yes, you bet. The spirit of the age is rebellion against authority. Authority structures are uniformly despised. We see it around us in our society. We see this, this if you don't agree with leadership, then disrespect it and despise it and tear it down. Turn hatefully against us. And that's called anarchy. Anarchy is the natural result of not respecting authority. And so we have this disrespect against civil leaders, against government, against police, against teachers, against parents, all these authority figures. And it affects even the church. Notice Jude 8. It says in this verse, in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Now someone will say, but what if leadership is wrong? Are we to just be like a doormat and let that happen? Now the word shows us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 19 and 20 what to do. It says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. Yes, God judges leadership and there is a protocol for bringing the sins of leaders to light. And it's true that leadership can be wrong and even church leadership. But on dealing with that, we need to practice the utmost respect for the office. Why? Because at the head of all earthly authority is the God of all earthly authority. Listen to Romans 13, verse 1 and 2. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. By my count, there are three times in those two sentences where it says that God has instituted the earthly authority. I once talked with someone about this, and they said that, well, God allows authority and government as if he's passive about it, as though government and authority was a necessary evil. But no, God has established it. One of the most remarkable comments 
on this issue of dealing with authority with respect is found in Jude, verses 9 and 10. It says, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. Here we have a dispute in the spiritual realm. And we wouldn't have learned about it unless Jude mentioned it because it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. So God revealed it to Jude, what happened long ago in the spiritual realm. Michael, the head of the angelic armies, is arguing with the devil, who happens to be the head of the evil armies, the fallen angels. Why about the body of Moses? The Bible doesn't say. Perhaps if the devil was allowed to control the body of Moses, he could use it to make a place of worship to pervert Israel with idolatry. We don't know. But here we have two leaders in their own realms. There's Michael and there's Satan. Michael is the authority over the angels. Satan is the authority over the fallen angels, over the kingdom of darkness. And Michael observed the law of respect for authority, so he spoke to Satan with respect. That is, in the context, the meaning of what was happening there. Can you feature that? Even the devil gets respect. Some have twisted this verse to mean Christians have not authority to resist the devil. That is not what is being said here. What is being said is when you do speak to the devil and resist him in the name of the Lord, do it respectfully. If the devil gets this level of respect, then we should be practicing it with all earthly authorities and especially church authority. To do otherwise is to follow the apostates. And remember, apostasy does not start with a bang. They secretly creep in among us and then they start their campaign to destroy the leaders. It says in Jude 16, they are grumblers and fault finders, boasters and even flatterers for their own purpose. Which means this, one minute they may be praising the, the pastor or praising the elder, and the next minute they are grumbling about that person behind their back, spreading the discontent like a virus. Friends, if you have a grievance against church authority, be careful. Pray about it first. If God leads you to complain, then go to the leader directly. Do not start a gossip campaign. And when you speak to that leader, speak respectfully. Always be respectful of the office. So there it is. Attack the, the truth of God's word, step number one. Attack the moral character of the Christians, step number two. Attack the leadership of the church. Step number three. That is the game plan of the apostates. Lastly, the text makes very clear that apostates will be severely judged by God. Some of the worst judgments ever pronounced by God are against the apostates. Look at these verses. Verse five. The Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. They were the rebels and idolaters who complained every step of the way and tried to depose Moses. The judgment, God bringing destruction.
Verse 6, rebellious angels bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. We're not told what that rebellion in, in point was, but a certain amount of, of angels have already been chained and will no longer be set free, set free to attack the world, and they will be judged at the last day. Verse 7, God rained fire and brimstone on the immoral people of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are all examples of God's judgment on apostates. They are wandering stars, says verse 11, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And verse 14 and 15, in an extended passage of judgment, it says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and all of the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So you get the point? The Lord is angry with sin, but he's very angry with the sin of apostasy. Now, why is he so angry with apostates? The answer is this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5 and 25. Now, you would be angry with those who unfairly treated you, and rightly so. But you would be more than angry at those who attack your loved ones, who seek to mislead and pervert your children or to destroy your wife and her reputation. The Lord is jealous for his own and will not turn a blind eye to those who come against his church. Those who sow mischief and rebellion in the church are sowing to the wind and they will reap the whirlwind. I told you that this was not a comforting or heartwarming sermon. Actually, that's going to come next week when we talk about how we should behave when apostates are trying, apostates are trying to do their worst. Jude encourages us to do our best. And that will be encouraging, I trust. But today, we need to be warned. Do not let the seeds of apostasy take root in your own life. May the Lord bless you personally, and may he bless us as a church body. Pray for us who are in leadership that we will be faithful shepherds of the flock and be protected from the attacks of the enemy. And lastly, just remember this. If you love the Lord, then you will come to love what Christ loves. He said this, I love the church. I love the church. People who love Jesus learn to love his church. May the Lord help you to do so for his namesake. Amen.